Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, it's Mike and Davina here, and welcome to yet another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we dig into this episode, I just want to quickly apologize. I know that I've fallen a little bit behind on the podcast and releasing new episodes regularly. To be honest with you, I've just kind of run out of some ideas for uh, what to cover on this podcast and and guests to reach out to as well. So um, before we go any further, I would just like to put it out to anyone who's listening. If you have any ideas for what you would like me to cover or guests that you would like to hear from, feel free to shoot me an email. My email address is info at masteryourmix.com. I'd love to know about what kind of challenges you guys are facing and what things you would like me to cover on this podcast and uh, what kind of guests to get as well. Because I think there's a lot of guests out there that are very knowledgeable in all sorts of different areas. And uh, today's guest actually is someone just like that. That guest is Yesco Lohan. Yesco runs the website AcousticsInsider.com, which is a website dedicated to helping people get better control of their mixing rooms so that you can get more accurate mixes. Now, one of the most common complaints that I see through my email or questions that people ask me about is students will write me saying, I can't get my mixes to sound good because my room sucks. What can I do about this? This episode is going to help you because Yesco definitely understands a lot about acoustics and he's going to shed some light on some myths about acoustic treatment and a lot of things that we've been told that we should do or we shouldn't do and he's going to break it down in a real simple way for you to understand on how you can get more control out of your room and things that you can do without even spending any money on actual acoustic treatment. You know, there's a lot of things that You could do just simply by moving things around in your room, and that's something that we're going to cover in this podcast. I think it's a great episode. I definitely learned a lot from it, and uh, after talking with him, it definitely made me reconsider where I have certain things placed in my room, and uh, right now, I'm really happy with the way my room is sounding, and I think that that has to do with a lot of the lessons that he's taught on his website and some stuff that I've learned from this interview, and I think that you're going to get a lot out of this as well, so... Let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right in. Yesco, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm good. I'm glad to be here, man. Thanks for inviting me on. Anytime. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are and what you do, how did you get into doing what you do? Uh, well, I started playing music when I was really young. I started playing the piano when I was about six, played, had lessons for years, then joined a band in high school, played the drums, um, and then I got into production, music production really early on as well. We had a, a music teacher back in school when I was about 13, 12, 13, who started us off on like just programming simple uh, simple songs on just a keyboard, just like the internal memory of a keyboard. And then I, I think I continued on to using like the first, like one of the first versions of Logic when that was still part of eMagic, I think, or something like that. Yep. And uh, that's kind of how I got started. And then I never really stopped producing uh, just for fun. Uh, until, yeah, all through like high school, university, and um, yeah, uh, I just enjoyed it so much that after my after finishing my degree uh, in engineering, I decided to uh, give that a proper shot and uh, actually study some more uh, music on top of my other engineering degree. And um, 
yeah, and in the sort of during those second that second round of studying music, I decided to just give kind of mixing professionally a shot, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, and because I I always enjoyed the mixing part the most um, from of uh, from like of, of the entire process, that was the part that I enjoyed the most, and I was kind of best at. And um, I realized in terms of production and like musicianship that if I wanted to get where I wanted to, or if I wanted to to get to what I was uh, aspiring to, it will, require, it will require a serious amount of, of work on my part, which I was just really not uh, like willing to put in. Uh, but the, um, the mixing part always was, uh, was really great and smooth, and people commented on that. And so I kind of said, okay, let's just forget about production and just focus on mixing. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's how, kind of how that came about. And uh, I guess like most people out there, I spent a good year or two um, just kind of, yeah, practicing in a way. I did, did a lot of reading and just figuring stuff out, um, basically working for one client for about a year until kind of things started rolling and uh, I, was, I was getting more clients. And um, yeah, and as with most people, very soon after I started mixing uh, properly, I realized that my room was really giving me a lot of trouble. And uh, and then my, the engineering nerd in me uh, came back out and uh, started getting interested in in the acoustics and uh, the acoustic side and the fixing fixing the room somehow, improving what, what I was hearing, and uh, and that's kind of how that got started. And again, it was just me doing experiments in my room, and then people uh, started coming over and saying, "Hey, this actually sounds quite good. Can you help me out?" And um, and that's kind of how that got started. And then. Uh, like my, it really helped that I had a proper engineering degree because it meant that I, I would, I, I, it was much easier for me to understand a lot of the underlying theory and put things into perspective, and um, and I guess figure out a bit more in depth what with testing what was actually going on and what what I was actually looking at what was happening, and yeah, so that's that's how that kind of developed. So so ever since I've been basically focusing on mixing and acoustics. And um, yeah, and I realized it's a, it's a it's a very healthy combination. It's a very there's a good uh, good overlap between the two because now I get to feedback all the stuff that I learn I learned or I I do as an as a as a mixer back into acoustics. So I know what I need to focus on. I need I need I know what matters to me as a mixer in terms of sound, and I know what doesn't matter. And so I can. I can uh, judge much better when I come across treatment methods and all this stuff like certain approaches if this is worth it to me on a sort of a, on a, on a sort of a big wins perspective, you know, focusing on what actually matters. For sure. And uh, yeah, so that, that really helps. That's awesome. So you said you went to school for engineering. And when you say yeah. that, you, you're talking like actual engineering, not like yeah. you, you can go to like <laughs> music school to learn production. Uh, uh, no, right? no, I, I know we were kind of talking about that off off the record before, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. So I, yeah, I studied aerospace engineering. So I studied a multidisciplinary multidisciplinary degree of aerospace engineering, electrical engineering, and computer science, with the focus on basically the computer systems, all the electronics that go into aircraft. So this is called avionic systems, aviation electronics, and. Um, yeah, it focuses on several parts that you all need to that you need to put together in order to make the airplane fly, and it's a very much sort of a top level uh, or top down view on the whole thing. So that that again helped with, with the acoustics because you're kind of putting together a lot of different pieces of the puzzle, and it helps to kind of step back and keep perspective 
of what actually matters and how things fit together. You don't necessarily need to know in depth to the tiniest detail how something works, as long as you know how you can use it as part of a bigger plan, a bigger sort of on a bigger scale. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, it definitely makes sense that that would help you when you made that transition into the acoustics engineering, because you kind of already have learned that process and that like methodical approach to analyzing things. Exactly, exactly. Cool. So before we get into some of the nitty gritty about actual like acoustic treatment and all that kind of stuff, I'd love to get your opinion. Is it possible to create a good mix in an untreated room? Absolutely. Absolutely. It just requires uh, a lot more diligence. You really need to have your workflow figured out because what you're at that point, you're fighting a lot of variables that your room is kind of putting into what you're hearing. And unless you know how to unpack those through a very strict and, and uh, yeah, like a, um, a very methodical procedure, uh, you're bound to get lost much quicker in what you hear. So um, there's a lot of things that, that mess with what you're hearing, like volume being one of them, uh, one of the things that really mess up what you're, what you, like how you judge what you hear. Obviously, that's the case in the treated room as well. But um, yeah, uh, obviously, the reverb time, reverb in terms of masking, it'll, it'll literally hide things in what you're hearing. So you need, to, you need to develop methods in order to be able to still hear those things somehow and figure out what's going on. And the only way to do that is through a very sort of uh, methodical workflow. So yeah, it's, it's, to- it's totally possible. And I mean, we hear it all the time and that people do great mixes in, in basically untreated rooms. I think the only thing that really, uh, that the, the one thing that you do need to do at that point is set up your speakers properly, figure out where you're sitting in your room position, your, your listening position and your speakers. That's kind of the minimum you can get away with because you really want to squeeze every last bit out of your room, even if you're not doing any treatment. And, uh, and the best way to do that is just through pure positioning. But at that point, it's totally possible. Awesome. Yeah, I love that. So let's say that I have an empty room. I've just moved into a new place or maybe I'm. I, it's an existing place, but I want to reorganize it and set it up so that it, it's optimal for my listening and for everything. Sure. What's the first place to start? Do you walk into the room and clap and listen for reflections? Do you just listen <laughs> to music? Do you measure things? Yeah. Like where, where do you start? Yeah. Well, um, uh, it's, well, I think the first thing obviously is just the impression when you get in, get in the room. When you walk in the room, you'll, you'll immediately notice if it's a very reverberant room or if it's a fairly dry room. You know, if like, there's a heavy carpet in there, you'll notice that immediately, that, the effect that has on, on the overall length of the reverb in that room, right? So that's the, kind of the first thing. That will, that will give you a clue on how much potentially, how much treatment you might want to do, right? Obviously, in a, in a, in a slightly drier space, you can probably get away with uh, doing less treatment than in a very reverberant space uh, because of like those masking effects, for example, that I was talking about, right? Um, So that's the first thing. And then the second is um, exactly what what I just mentioned about positioning, right? So the the important thing if you're you're just entering a new room is to figure out where do I place my setup? Like if you have, especially if you have a a room that isn't just a shoe box that's slightly oddly shaped, you know, it's probably suboptimal in terms of shape. Um, there, there's only going to be a few spots in there, probably two or three, where you're going to get a, a more or less balanced low end. And you want to figure out where those are, because if you sit in those, you'll be fighting the natural response of the room a lot less than if you just set up anywhere. 
And obviously there are guidelines about this. Probably everybody who's kind of read about acoustics a bit and setting up a room has heard about this 38% guideline, which is basically all about optimizing your position in regards to the length of the room. But this is, in my opinion, this is too simplistic because it, it requires uh, a perfectly uh, shoebox-shaped room. And as soon as your room is not as oddly shaped, this whole thing just falls apart. Um, so um, in what I, I recommend at that point is you do a simple listening test. So this is where you, um, where you put a, a speaker in a corner, for example, and then you play some some music that you know well. And by putting the speaker in the corner, you'll actually create kind of a worst case scenario. You'll agitate the the room to its worst possible uh, in its worst possible way, and that will make it really easy to hear how the bass, the low end, changes throughout the room. And at that point, you can then just sit in your chair and roll around the room and and figure out where it sounds roughly balanced. And that will give you an like give you a good idea which facing which side makes sense, setting up in which direction makes sense, and and then you can kind of obviously refine that a bit if you take more time and spend some more time with a few different tracks and kind of average out where it it sounds the best to you on average. And that's that's where you should then set up. That's where you should sit, and then you should kind of build your setup around that position, and that way you know okay I'm literally I'm getting. Uh, I'm working as best as I can with the natural response of the room, and uh, and uh, and if I if I decide to then go on with treatment, I'm building on t- on that already existing balance. I'm not trying to correct a misshaped frequency response in the low end because I'm not sitting in the right spot. Got it. Now, when you're doing that test where you put the speaker in the corner of the room, is there an optimal listening level that you should be? Paying attention to, or like setting your speakers to? Well, uh, it should be comfortable. I mean, like uh, not too quiet uh, because it's going to be diff- diff- more difficult to hear, and uh, not too loud. It's, I think it's the same. Uh, it's it's kind of this r- aiming roughly with the, for the same volume that you m- would mix at. You know, it's uh, it's it's generating a healthy volume <laughs> in the room. Uh, it, I don't think it matters all that much how loud you listen to. It's, it's whatever feels comfortable to you. You know, I mean, if you're going to be if you're going to be listening to if you're going to be doing this test for like, like an hour or so listening to a few tracks, really honing in on where you want to set up. Um, it makes sense, obviously, not play it too loud. So you don't get uh, really tired. And um, but it's, it's I I, I think it's it's just a comfortable uh, volume. Fine. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to be working in the room, you want to be able to set your room up so that you understand what it's going to sound like at a consistent volume every single time, and you learn those nuances. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. You can kind of aim for that from right from the beginning. I mean, it's it it, it I, I think I should mention obviously that if you do this, if you set up the speaker in the corner, like on the floor, literally in the sort of tri corner of your room. And the the high end the mids aren't going to sound great as you move away from the speaker. It's just going to change a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So while you're listening to music now at that point, you're literally just focusing on the bass, right? And uh, I always kind of I always describe it as focusing on the the gut, which is like the subs, and then like the upper punch in your chest, and that'll kind of give you a, a rough impression or like a, give you a good idea of whether you're listening to subs or, or, or a kind of upper bass, yeah. right? And, and, and it makes sense to also just test the extremes. You know, you, wanna, you, really, you don't want to be careful this, with this. Like, you want to literally just jump in the deep end and, like, test the entire room. I like to hold my head right up against the wall 
because that will give you an idea of what it sounds like when it's really extremely, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? When you basically, when you have a lot of sub bass mm-hmm. in, because you get that, um, that pressure build up right up against the wall and you'll, that's, that's how it should not sound. Yeah. <laughs> you, f- you figure out what it should not sound like, and that will give you a better idea of, of the middle ground that you're aiming for. Yeah. So just for clarification there, um, with that test, of putting the speaker in the corner, that's not yeah. where the speaker is going to end up. Like that's exactly. worst case scenario. And, and so exactly. how does that affect things from the perspective of if you're trying to find that sweet spot in the room where the bass is kind of the best sounding, you're going to move your speakers bad. at some point, right? So how does that, yeah. like when you move the speakers, how is that going to affect the, that bass position? Will you have yeah. to move it at all again? Or So you can't expect that the low end is going to sound the same as during the test. I think that's really important to know and to realize. It's not going to sound the same. The the idea is that you're looking for a position where the and now we're getting a bit technical where we have to talk like about room modes, which are basically resonances that build up between the different surfaces of your room. And you're trying to find the spot where the energy in all those resonances is is kind of evened out. So you're 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 trying to find that best spot. And even when you then move the speaker. It'll sound different, but you're still sitting in that spot where you'll get that even response from all those room modes. And so, um, so you uh, don't be surprised if it change if it sounds quite different once you then set up your speakers. Uh, but trust that you are still in the position that will give you the most balanced response in terms of low end. And still, obviously, then on top, you just mentioned it, and that's totally correct. This isn't this isn't like uh, set in stone. Even at that point, once you've realized, uh, once you've once you've set up your speakers, let's say around this new listening position, and you realize, for example, ah, oh, well, maybe it still sounds a little bit bass light, for example, right? Then you can obviously just say, okay, well, I know from my test that if I move a foot forward, I'm going to get more sub bass, for example, mm-hmm. right? So absolutely use that knowledge to then tune what you're hearing to the point where it sounds the best to you. Right, so if you then set up your speakers and you find okay, it sounds a bit bass light. Well, try and move the whole thing forward by foot, you know, and uh, get a bit more low end if that's what you want. Right, so this is this is it's it's, it's a tool, you know. It's not a it's not a, there's no no this, it's not it's not an absolute position you're trying to identify. It's not and there's no technically correct position you are trying to identify. It's more this. That's when taste comes into play, you know, when when your personal taste as a as a listener and as a mixer comes into play, and you need to respect that because you'll once you're mixing, you're constantly be going, you're going to constantly be you're going to constantly be aiming for that balance intuitively, and so it might as well try and squeeze that out of your system right from the start. Yeah, I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I I, th- I think too many people focus on having this perfect room that sounds amazing in every single position. But at the end of the day, yeah. it's really about the mixing position because that's where you're doing your yeah. work. Yeah. And I mean, to be quite frank, I need to debunk that right now. That's literally impossible <laughs> <laughs> to, to get the, the room to sound great everywhere is it is literally impossible. Like um, that's basically what sound system designers for big like venues try and do. You know, and but they work with uh, with many sets of speakers. They work with line arrays. Cinemas obviously come into come into thought. Like if you're thinking about trying to optimize the sound for every seat, every space in the room, but it's very difficult to do. It's very expensive. It's a completely different approach as well. 
So you shouldn't even try to optimize for every space in the room because it's you're 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 fighting a losing battle, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no point really in trying. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier the idea of like the shoebox type of room. Yeah, is there a best position to set up your speakers? Like, should you be setting your speakers along the shorter wall or the longer wall? Does that does that yeah. make any difference? Uh, it makes a difference. Um, the thing is, I think again, there's there's kind of this this rule of thumb floating about. You should always face the long uh, or face the long side. Set it up along the the length, the length, the long. So your speakers are shooting towards the the long end. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. The main reason for that is uh, well, first of all, that you're sitting at that 38. percent I'm making air quotes here. 38 percent ideal listening spot. Um, and you're shooting, uh, the, the reflection coming off the back wall is going to be kind of the maximum delayed, uh, in comparison to if you shot the speakers, if you shot sound across the, sh- uh, the, the short dimension, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, there's, when you, when you look at it in practice, there are quite a few other things that come into play. And the first one is that, like I mentioned, this 38% rule doesn't, it kind of starts breaking apart really quickly. The first reason is obviously that your room is asymmetrical, as I mentioned, or it's just not a shoebox, but also just drywall, windows, doors, a suspended ceiling. Um, perhaps even if you're like, if you're not on the, on the ground floor, maybe the, the, the floor that you're on resonates. So as, as the walls and the different surfaces potentially resonate, they will affect the, the 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 wavelength or the sorry the wave reflecting off of that wall, which in turn will affect the frequency of the the corresponding room mode. So basically, you end up with a, a in reality you end up with a situation where the the room modes that actually happen in the room are enough off in comparison to the calculated ideal. Um, that the the thirty eight percent rule or just following just pure theory doesn't work anymore because just minor minor changes but in all dimensions already uh, accumulate to a response that is different enough so that you could actually find a different spot if you just used the hearing test and so coming back to this uh, shooting down the long long uh, the length of the room or, or the short. <laughs> yeah. I mentioned the room, the width of the room. Um, I've had plenty of rooms where I discovered that it makes more sense to to set up facing the facing the long side, so shooting down on the short side, I guess, just because that's what the room was actually doing, and uh, maybe because at the end of the long distance there's a big window, and that affects that room mode enough so that it actually makes sense to face the the long wall or a setup across the short short dimension you know so it's uh, so it's it's it keep an open mind with this sort of stuff right it's worth obviously uh, testing it for, testing the the sort of standard advice first but test it and have an open mind that it might not be the best in your room yeah for sure no that makes a lot of sense because like I, I even think about my last um my last apartment that i that i had set my mixed room in i, I had to face the long wall because on the short wall, on one side, I had a giant window, and the yeah. other side behind me was a mirror. So yeah. it was like just total reflections, and like that was just yeah. no good at yeah. all. So setting up the other way made yeah. it totally work. So yeah, I guess yeah. you know you really have to mess around with it and try it out in your room yeah. and find that optimal yeah. thing. And I mean, one thing to add as well, it's just like in in especially in smaller rooms, you often you don't have that many options, just ergonomically speaking, just in terms of using 
practically using the room, you know, yeah. like setting up your stuff. And um, so I, I like to just test for my options and then just make a, a, a sort of a balanced judgment uh, on what makes the most sense, both in terms of sound and ergonomics. You know, like uh, if if that perfect lo location is set, uh, set up at just doesn't work because there's because I there's a, a a door that I need to use 20 times a day uh, in a, in a, just a really stupid location that way, then, you know, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, then I'm just going to, I'm going to say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pick the second best position. At least I know <laughs> it's the second best position. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I've also heard a lot of people talk about the idea of a live end and a dead end. And so like the yeah. live end, usually behind the mixer, you got diffusion and stuff happening there. Yeah. The front end's got a lot of absorption. Does that same principle apply to most home studios? Um, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is not an easy one to answer, um, okay. because, um, the fact is that live and dead end is quite an old approach to acoustic treatment. Um, and, uh, it's pretty much like all the research that's been done since show that it's, uh, there's, there's not much point in this whole live and dead end concept in terms of control rooms. Obviously, now when you're talking about, let's say, a project studio where you're doing recordings from one end of the room and mixing from the other, you might do a live end, dead end, just because you want more lively sound on the end where you're recording and you want to dry on the side where you're mixing, right? Um, but in terms of in terms of effectively treating your room, when it comes down to it, to be honest, <laughs> when it comes down to it, you really want to get rid of everything. That's literally the highest, that's the bar we're trying to reach, right? And there's, there's, um, I mean, this, like I said, this, uh, we, we need, we'd, we'd have to dig very deep into, go very deep into the different types of, of approaches to treating um, uh, audio spaces that are creative spaces. And uh, I mean, there's live and dead end, there's obviously uh, the non-environment spaces, there's uh, the reflection-free zone, all these different types of approaches, and they all... They well, yeah. Some some of them have more merit than others. <laughs> uh, let's just say it like that. And but in terms of applying that to the home studio, for a lot of these to make them work, they need very specific technical criteria to actually make them that kind of room. And oftentimes you literally don't have the space, or you don't have the geometry, or um, yeah, you can't practically make it happen, as I said, because there's a door, maybe you have some, some other stuff set up, whatever. And I think it's, 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 it, there's not much point in trying to achieve that uh, when it is often impossible to do. Yeah. And when looking at the underlying theory, oftentimes that none, there's less sense to it than you might think. Um, it's, it's a much healthier and simpler approach to just say, well, ideally, I'd like to get rid and or break up all reflections and also dampen out all the room modes. That's kind of the ideal I'm aiming for. And let's see how far along that path I can take my room. Um, that's I think it's a it's a more sane approach to treating a home studio. So when you say get rid of everything, you're not talking about just covering your walls and and in absorption and absorbing all of that sound you're talking about like breaking everything up and dispersing it properly and, and yeah taking care of those yeah. first reflection points and stuff well funny enough i am talking about literally getting rid of everything okay. the point is it needs to be broadband so you like 
uh, because a lot of, especially in smaller rooms, a lot of the bigger, well, most of the bigger issues, like literally 90% of the real issues are sort of below 150 hertz. And so you need to get rid of even reflections, by the way. I'm not just talking room modes, but even reflections. And, um, and, in, and in order to get rid of those, you need to have an acoustic panel that reaches that far down, right? Because otherwise you're kind of you're getting rid of the top end of that problem. But the actual big issues in the low end uh, of, of that particular reflection, let's say, and if your absorber isn't deep enough, then you won't be able to do much uh, to that particular reflection at that frequency. So, um, so yeah, I am actually talking about getting rid of everything. That is, it's 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 a very drastic approach. But when we're talking about trying to be to to get a sound from our speakers that lets us work effectively and hear what's in the music, the ideal, very very sort of drastically said, is to just hear what's coming out of your speaker, whether that's to do that, obviously, getting rid of all the reflections means literally working in an anechoic chamber, which, yes, is not going to be pleasant. But <laughs> I'm telling you, you're going to make good decisions when listening to that kind of sound, you know. So so we have to just kind of strike a balance. Like I said, it's kind of the ideal that we're aiming for. The question is how far along that path do we want to go? And also, which which part of that that equation is the most important which which part gives us the big wins Got it. like do we we don't we probably don't need to get rid of all of them because some of them are just less important than others and but focusing on getting rid of all, everything while focusing on the most important ones first <laughs> makes sense uh, gives us gives us the biggest bang for our buck and then we don't have to worry about um about trying to design a certain sound you Got know it. because ultimately if you just if you, you try and aim for just speaker sound, that's probably a a pretty good solution, or that's probably that's probably a pretty good goal. So then, when do you need to use absorption versus diffusion versus bass traps, all that kind of stuff? Like, yeah, because yeah. from what you just said there, it sounds like oh, if I just put absorption everywhere, that should be fine. But yeah. there's obviously yeah. diffusers for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I kind of I like to approach or I like to describe these different tools. With a very, uh, I have a very rough, uh, like analogy, and I like to compare them to shooting with a shotgun or shooting with a sniper rifle. Right? Okay. We're we're not particularly well. First of all, you need to know that an a porous absorber, a standard broadband absorber, and I cl include bass traps in that because a bass trap is literally a broadband absorber put in a room in a way that it absorbs bass. But in te like the, the the device is the same. In any case, it's not a targeted tool. It's it's like a lot of these the companies that sell these products will make you believe that these are targeted tools, but they're not. They're literally like a shotgun. They're more like a sawed-off shotgun. Like the only thing you want to do with these is you want to point them in the right direction and you want to get close and then shoot. And if you want to, if you want to, like, if you want to, this is yeah, this is a. I don't, I don't like this analogy. If somebody comes up with a better analogy, please let me know. Um, but if you want to like hit more targets, you know, you don't have to aim your shotgun more precisely, which would be the equivalent of using like a resonance absorber or a diffuser. Instead, you just want to shoot more, <laughs> you know. And so, um, coming back to your question, where do these tools come into play? I like to, I like to say, look, let's just use our shotgun and try and mow down as much as possible. And then what remains, we can still deal with 
if we need to, if we want to, with a sniper rifle or like a more targeted <laughs> approach, you know? Yep. And, and that's where resonance absorbers, for example, come in or, or diffusers come in. The, the thing with diffusion is, the problem with diffusers is typically they're, the, the way they're designed is that they only really work in the high mids and kind of high end, right? They're like sort of a typical absorber that you can buy online will probably work somewhere between one or 2K up to maybe 6K. So again, in small rooms, the issues are below 150 hertz. So putting a whole lot of diffusers in a room with those issues, it's going to break up that high end, which might sound nice if you walk into that room and talk, but it's not going to help you listen to the low end from your speakers. If you want to build a diffuser that works in the low end, below 150 hertz, this thing becomes massive and very, yeah, it basically becomes impossible to use in a, in a, in a typical home studio. I mean, you've all seen, or if you haven't seen it, um, Blackbird Studios has that room um, designed by, I can't remember exactly, I think George Massenberg was somehow involved with that, but it's basically uh, everything's a gigantic diffuser. Every wall is diffusion except for the floor. And if you look at the ceiling, you'll see those really big cubes sitting on the ceiling with smaller diffusers on top of those cubes. And what that actually is, is just a gigantic QRD diffuser, right? The entire ceiling, this is, I think, is a pretty big room. And the entire ceiling is a gigantic QRD diffuser in order to reach low frequencies with diffusion. But it's, it's very difficult to do. It's basically impossible in a home studio. And so uh, a diffuser becomes a tool that you use as a sweetening. It's kind of like mastering a record, <laughs> you know? Um, it's, or talking about what I was saying before, you want to get rid of everything, right? So you kind of maybe focus on the important parts first, and then you're still maybe left with quite a few open, um, open walls that don't necessarily need absorption. So you, you might as well put a high mid to high diffuser there because it will break up those last specular reflections from those flat surfaces and they will improve the overall feel good factor of the room and uh, and uh, they will break up obviously those reflections and it will make the sound more more balanced and more neutral i guess but um unless you've covered your main issues with the low end they're not going to solve they're not going to do anything for you yeah. you know so that's what kind of where diffusion comes in for sure nonetheless on that panel that uh, the panel that i use i decided to put a a a very simple uh diffuser type on the front of it because uh it does help a little bit with with maintaining a bit of liveliness in the room like i mean if you've been following me for any time if you've seen any of my stuff then you'll know that um i don't uh, like uh, a dead sounding room isn't because of short reverb times a dead sounding room is because of an unbalanced reverb time and short reverb times don't make a room may don't make a dead again making air quotes sounding room. It's if you are over damping the highs, if you've got a really short reverb in the highs, and then you've got uncontrolled lows. That's what makes a room sound dead. And um, so I put this very simple kind of type of diffuser on the top of my panels because that way I can keep a bit of that energy in the high end uh, in the room while letting the the broadband absorber do its thing in the mids and the low uh, and the low end and uh, and it helps a bit more with evening out that um that reverb time that's awesome and, and avoiding dead sound yep 
Makes sense. Well, I definitely want to go back to that idea of the panels that you're talking about. Um, yeah. But I'm just curious, like, I know, like, I, I feel like anybody, anyone who's even bought acoustic treatment stuff at, at a store yeah. or try to make their own, you look in your room and you're like, where the hell do I put this stuff? So yeah. what's the first step for that? Like, I've, I've heard of using, like, a mirror trick. Yeah, where you have yeah. someone slide the mirror against the wall and you try to find your speaker yeah. cones in the mirror. Yeah. Is that is that an accurate way to figure out where to put stuff? Yeah, yeah, totally. Absolutely. Right. So, I mean, there's different types of reflections uh, that you want to consider, but that's like the main one. It's basically the, the one where the sound bounces, comes out of the speaker, bounces off one wall, reflects back to the listening position, to your ear or I guess your microphone if you're measuring or whatever or if you're recording. Um, so uh, that's, yeah, that's the main one. I mean, looking at at, uh, at higher frequencies, it's kind of like playing pool, right? It's like playing billiards pool. I'm not sure what you call it, but um, it's like a, a game of pool in 3D. <laughs> and um, and so it, the, the sound will take the same path as light. So you have a surface, and where, when the, the sound hits that ray of sound, hits uh, the surface, it will reflect at the same angle that it sort of en entered the wall or that it hit the wall. So the inbound angle equals the outbound angle. And so it's, again, like playing pool. And so if you, you, if you, if you sit at your listening position and, uh, and you try and find the spot where the sound bounce bounces off of your left wall, for example, from your, from your listening position, then all you need to do is hold up a mirror at, at the height or like at ear height, basically between at the plane between your, your on the plane between your speaker and your ear, and just kind of move the, the mirror along until you see the speaker cone, or the the acoustic center of the speaker, uh, which is technically where the sound comes from. Um, but that's just basically where the speaker cone is, and um, yeah, and that will be one of your main reflection points off of that wall. Um, the, I mean, one thing to consider is obviously you're moving as you mix. You're not going to sit fixed in in space when you when you when you mix so you're going to be moving forwards and backwards a bit you might be moving sideways a bit especially like if you've got uh, some racks or something and you know, some some 19 inch racks and you're sort of leaning forward maybe to the side to like uh, move twist some knob or something or on a mixing console and um at that point obviously that reflection point will move right so it kind of makes sense to to uh to mark maybe that, that first initial position on the wall and then you kind of tilt forward like just lean forward as you might as you work and then you do the same test again and figure out where the where that reflection point is moved to, and then you kind of lean maybe to the side, move lean a bit back, you know the kind of the movements that you do, and you define a reflection zone on the wall instead of just one point, because obviously the sound doesn't just reflect off of one point; it reflects off of a surface, and uh, and by by figuring out where those reflection points fall as you move, you define a more broader zone, and then you know. Okay, I need to cover that entire zone in order to get rid of my reflections on on that particular wall, for example. Yep, I, I love that. I've also heard the idea of needing an air gap behind your absorber. Is that necessary? Like, do you always need to have an air gap? And what's the, what's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so the the air gap just improves the low end absorption of your panel. Right, so the absorber we're talking. This is again. This is only with porous absorbers, right? Only velocity absorbers, absorbers that uh, that absorb by friction with the movement of air molecules, right? So in a sound wave, you have air pressure, which is how much the air molecules are pressed together, and then you have 
velocity, which is how much the actual air particles are kind of vibrating or moving. And sound pressure and sound velocity will actually, sort of particle velocity, will uh, are exactly inversed. So where you have high pressure, you have low particle velocity and the other way around, right? So what happens as you move closer to the wall is the 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 air will start being pressed together because it starts pressing against that that surface, that rigid surface. So as you go closer to the wall, you'll actually get higher and higher pressure, which in turn means lower and lower particle velocity. But your porous absorber absorbs particle velocity. So if you actually put the absorber right on the wall, it really doesn't do much because there's no particle velocity for it to work with. So as you're moving the absorber back from the wall, you're starting to to hit um, or you're, st you're starting to enter the, the kind of area for a particular sound wave where you have more and more particle velocity. And obviously the particle velocity uh, will be maximum at a quarter of the wavelength from the wall, right? So you kind of, let's say you have uh, 100 hertz, uh, wavelength is, oh God, let me just get this right, is 3.4 meters, which is about 10 feet, I guess. And at a quarter of that, you'll have a maximum particle velocity. So that's uh, 2.5 feet. Am yep. I getting that right? Yep. Basic maths. And so if you put, that's where you'd ideally want to put your absorber for 100 hertz wavelength or for 100 hertz frequency and 10 foot wavelength. So you're saying two and a half feet away from the from the wall? Yes, for, for and here's the critical part, for 100% okay. maximum absorption. I was going to say, I, still, I, I don't think I've ever been in a studio where I've just seen the, no, the panels hanging, right? Is, yeah, so, but this is the critical part. So now, obviously, first of all, you can, you don't need to go that far away from the wall because you can, you'll still get plenty of absorption if it's just 50%. If you're just hitting kind of the 50% mark of that particle wavelength, whatever, mm -hmm. right? So if you're just at an eighth of the wavelength, you'll still get 50% absorption, which is plenty, which is still good enough to work with, right? So you, you, absorption doesn't just cut off from one distance to the next just because you're not hitting that quarter wavelength point, okay? But now going full circle back to your original question, what does that got to do with the, way, uh, with the, the air gap? Well, basically, if, if you consider this 2.5 feet distance that you'd have to, that you could potentially fill with porous absorber, it's only that outer part that actually works in your favor because like the, the sort of the, the second half closest to the wall isn't doing anything for you because that's where the particle velocity is going down to almost, well, basically to zero or right up against the wall. So you can just get rid of that material. So now what you've got is an absorber that is half air, half porous uh, absorber, half mineral wool, insulation material, whatever, right? And so you actually, so in effect, that means you have to count in order to, to classify or to, to figure out how deep your absorber is, is working in terms of frequency, you need to look at the distance from the surface of the absorber to the reflecting surface behind it. It's not just the depth of the material that's working for you, it's the entire depth of the um, the absorber, the total depth of the absorber system. Yeah, with say, the air gap in right? there. Yeah. Talking with the air gap in there. And there you go. Okay. So now turning this upside down, that means if you let's say got a, a, a four inch absorber, you if you put that thing at 
four inches off the wall, you've now effectively got an eight inch absorber mm -hmm. without actually needing any extra material, right? So, so this is how this whole air gap thing works. It's, 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 a, it's a tool you can use to increase the low frequency performance of your, or the low frequency extension, let's say, uh, of your uh, porous absorber, yeah. right? And maybe just to round that off as a rule of thumb, uh, as a very rough rule of thumb, uh, you want to go for a maximum of a, like a relationship of one to one. So basically an air gap that is the same depth as your porous absorber. Got it. Because going beyond that, especially with the very thin types, like those two inch absorbers, or whatever, because of this quarter wavelength effect, which, and I'm not going to explain this again in more detail now, but basically because of that effect, you actually start having drop offs in the, uh, in the mids because the the porous absorber the insulation material is too narrow in relation to the air gap so don't go for like a six inch air gap with a two inch absorber that's that's going to give you inconsistent results in the midst got like it. one to one that's a good rule of thumb stick to that and you're good to go yeah so then what if I, if i were to build my own material what's a normal thickness for the the um rigid insulation or yeah whatever material we're using here yeah yeah so basically, well, as much as you can <laughs> is the simple answer, because remembering going back to the bigger picture, ultimately you want to build an absorber, a tool that works broad spectrum, the entire spectrum. So the, the way to do that is to build a very deep absorber, as I mentioned, ideally for 100 hertz, you want it to, well, technically, theoretically for 100 hertz, you want to go up to 2.5 feet, which isn't necessary, but yeah. there you go. <laughs> it's so, quite big. So, so you want to make it as deep as possible. Now, where I, where, I, where I would start arguing is, or what I would start arguing is, well, where does this stop being practical or stop being uh, good in terms of price performance, right? So I've figured out that around the um, six inches mark is, in my opinion, the best in terms of low frequency performance versus actual size of the module, right? Got it. You can make it, you can go eight inches, that's fine go 10 inches if you want at that point you will be able to hit 30 hertz if you if you if you respect this air gap rule um and when you say six inches that's three inches of air gap and three inches. no so this is okay. six inches of air gap plus six inches of uh sorry yeah six inches of air gap plus six inches of insulation material so the actual absorber the panel is a six inch absorber right and then and does that make sense? So, are you saying like a foot? Uh, it's going to be a foot wide. Well, if or, you put it one, if you put it six inches off the wall. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the the, the in effect the 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 absorber mechanism works as a twelve inch absorber, but your actual panel, the thing that you're building, is only six inches deep. Got it. Right. And uh, I mean the the way the way to really leverage this air gap is to put your panel across a corner, right? So this is where this whole thing comes in. Got it, is yeah, when, makes sense. When you put it across a corner, you automatically, if you build a 4x2 uh, panel, 6 inches deep, 4x2 feet panel, 6 inches deep, and you put that across a corner, you automatically create an air gap that varies, obviously, from next to nothing at the corner, right at the edges, all, all the way down to about 6 got inches, it. maybe 8 inches at the deepest point. And at that point, you've got a, a very effective low-end absorber that happily absorbs down to about 40 hertz yeah okay that makes sense yeah I, I i was just trying to picture that like looking around my room like thinking if something's sticking a foot out from my wall and it's six inches of air gap and then six inches of absorber yeah. 
That's, yeah. that sticks out quite a bit. You lose a lot of real estate there. That's that. Yeah, that's that's you. That's something you just have to get used to. Yeah. Um. It's this is. I mean, ultimately, you have to think about it this way. You are especially if you're working from a typical home studio, a bedroom, basement, attic, whatever, spare bedroom. You're trying to reshape the entire sonics of that room all the way down into the low end. You know, and low frequencies have incredible wavelengths. You are literally redesigning that entire room and it's going to cost space. Mm-hmm. There's no way around it. You know, that's one of the compromises you just have to get used to. Um, unless you're building from scratch and you can, you can visually hide that depth of the absorber somehow, it's going to feel like you're losing a lot of real estate. Yeah. So is the problem with most small rooms, you said it's low end, but is it low end from the perspective of there's too much low end in these smaller rooms or not enough? Um, I think that's it's. it's uh, you, we need to describe it differently because you have to think about it this way. Um, <clears throat> the let's again going back to this example that the speaker outputs perfect sound. Yeah, let's just leave it at that. It's not entirely perfect, but whatever. Let's just, for argument's sake, say our speaker outputs perfect sound, flat frequency response, perfect time, yep. all that stuff. So now the room comes in and it starts. Uh, sort of eating away at that at that perfect sound, and the funny thing about acoustics and the way that sounds and uh, uh, waves interact is that when I say eating away, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're losing energy. It, sometimes it means that energy is actually uh, reinforced. Yeah, it's like That's reflecting and, and exactly. Yeah, so things understand. like exactly. So if you have if you have uh, two wavelengths uh, constructively interfering they'll reinforce each other. So you'll actually end up with more energy. So, but the, the fact remains that the, the, the room is stealing that perfect response or it's eating away, it's taking away that perfect sound from the speaker. So if you, if you start removing this, the room from the equation again, what you'll end up is once again the perfect sound from the speaker, right? And so you don't, you don't really have, you need, you need to have too much or too little <laughs> low end in small rooms it's more that it's it's messed up it's like a battlefield <laughs> and what you're trying to do is is uh, is uh, is kind of go over over that messed up battleground and even it out again you know um so that's that's kind of what you're trying to do yeah, bad analogy but yeah so people but. adding a subwoofer to their to their speakers is that like just a recipe for disaster because you're introducing even more of that low end which seems to be a big problem right exactly yeah, so it could it can be a problem if you're if you're basically what you're doing is you're introducing more energy into that system and all the problems that you have are just going to be amplified. Uh, so the dips are going to get lower, the peaks are going to get higher, and obviously if you're extending your frequency response downwards, which ideally you want to do with a subwoofer, then you're starting to uh, you're starting to um, uh, agitate or you're starting to to hear the you're putting energy into those really low frequencies, and so now those the problems that your room generates at those low frequencies will appear because you're now actually putting energy into that those low frequencies. So let's say you you you're working in your room and you have that issue that you you just don't have enough bass. You know that's kind of the issue that you have. It's just like I am I don't have enough low end. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just now put uh, if you just think okay I'm going to compensate with subwoofer brute force it might work. But you, you probably what's going to happen is you're going to just agitate 
that problem even more and you're potentially even going to end up with less space. So the solution isn't putting more energy into the system. The, the, uh, the solution is to find a spot in your room where the energy evens out better. And at that point, you can start putting more energy in it because uh, you're, you're, you're not agitating a, a problem more, but you're actually fixing the problem and then extending your frequency range. Got it. That, that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I've also heard a lot of people talk about getting different monitors, like certain monitors aren't a good fit for certain sized rooms. Is there truth to that or does that matter? If you're mixing at a lower volume, does it really matter that you have super powerful monitors? In my opinion, this is complete BS. Um, I have no idea when that, how that came about. If somebody has a proper technical reason, do enlighten me. But uh, as far as I can tell, bigger speakers output more power, more volume. That's basically the main thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means, uh, but you can reduce the volume or you can reduce the amount of output volume just by turning down the volume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's just, uh, there's, there's, it doesn't make any sense. On t- well, quite the contrary, bigger speakers tend to have lower distortion, which is great. And uh, so, that, so you technically, it might make sense to go for a bigger speaker. Or like uh, from a distortion perspective, it might make sense to go for a bigger speaker. The one thing where I, I do agree that it makes sense to go for a smaller speaker is literally if you don't have the physical space to fit it or put it where it needs to go, yeah. right? Because remember I said at the beginning that it's, it's super important to sit at the right position, but it's also super important to then set up your speakers properly in terms of like a uh, stereo triangle Getting, making sure you have a proper phantom center that the, 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 the stereo image is balanced between your two speakers. Mm-hmm. And sp- depending on the type of speaker, you'll also, and, and your room, um, you'll also want to set up you, the, the speakers at, a, at the optimum distance to your listening position, right? Some speakers, for example, the, the Neumann uh, KH120s, they really, they really work best at like, under three feet distance. That's where they sound the best. It's a it's a tiny speaker. It works best with a tiny stereo triangle. Mm-hmm. That's when it sounds best. And um, if you if you try and uh, okay, so now going back to bigger speakers, if you were if you're trying to use a humongous speaker in a small room, and your you the the cabinet is literally so big that you cannot put it where it will give you an optimal stereo image, then you're just shooting yourself in the foot in terms of, of just placement. But this is, this is because of the size of the speaker, not because of the output power or the volume or any of that mumbo jumbo. So it's, uh, this is, I think if you're deciding what size of speaker to go for, um, think about physically if it fits, if you can put it where it needs to go and if it will stop you from putting it where it needs to go. Because it's more important to put your speaker where it needs to go than the actual size of the speaker. Got it. Yep. And in terms of distance to the wall with the speakers, I've also heard people say like, you need to have at least two feet behind the speaker. Like, is there truth to that as yeah. well? Or Yeah. So, uh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> the simple answer is no. Um, basically, there are, things happen. Uh, you, you obviously... The, the, the res- well, not obviously, but basically the response of the speaker changes as you move, as you change the distance from the wall. But um, you, there are benefits and consequences to either. So unless 
and I well, and maybe uh, there's uh, if you if you're interested in this stuff, I wrote an article on Sonic Scoop. It's called the number one speaker placement tip that speaker manuals get completely wrong. All right. <laughs> so if you <laughs> if you're interested in figuring, if you're inter- really interested in the theory, this is like this is about as deep as it can go. Um, and I will explain to you exactly what's happening as you move the speaker or as you set up the speaker at varying distances from the wall. And the and well, the short answer is there are advantages and downsides to both. And in a small room, it makes sense to set up as close as possible to the wall. Uh, have your speakers, sorry, as close as possible to the wall. Um, uh, unless you work from a really big room and you can get further away from the wall, then I can't remember exactly what I figured out there in the article, but it was probably something like, was it four meters? So about 12 feet or something like that. Something along those lines. If you can get seriously far away from your walls, that's better than uh, uh, than being somewhere in the middle. But ultimately, you know what? It's like ultimately this whole thing of where your listening position is relative to the room modes. So this thing that I mentioned at the beginning yeah. and where your speakers are set up relative to your listening position is more important than the exact distance that you have to to the to the rear wall, for example, or the front wall, the wall behind the speakers, because the same thing that happens with the reflection on the front wall is happens on the with the reflection on the side walls and on the ceiling and on the on the on the floor. And which one are you going to optimize for? Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a, you know it's just like well if you if you're if you're starting to play this game of optimizing the distance to a certain surface, then you need to consider all of them and not, not just one. You know, and uh, and at that point, you're starting to really you're starting to play a game that's very difficult to solve. And it's and like I said, there's there's ups and down ups and downsides for both. So for for whatever you do, so ultimately, it's just like well, look, just do what you can to get a proper stereo image and live with the the reflections that the surfaces will give you, because you can always also treat those. It's much easier to, especially if you're set up, if you end up being closer to the wall. You can always put an absorber there and actually uh, at least dampen that reflection, and that will mitigate that problem anyway. So, my opinion, uh, the the priority is setting up in terms of room modes, and then positioning your speakers in terms of stereo image, and then you deal with the consequences of the reflections later on. Well, yeah, it's going back to what you said originally, just that that thirty eight percent rule and finding that optimal listening position first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that because even. So in the room that I'm currently in, um, when I moved in here, it, it's it's not that deep of a room. So for me, like my speakers yeah. almost ha- they have to be pretty close to the wall, yeah. Just because that 38 percent is where I'm sitting, and and that yeah. just means the speakers are going to be there, you know. <laughs> so you just got to work with what you've yeah, got, right? Totally. Yeah, and like I said, is in effect actually it makes more sense to set up close to the wall your speakers close to the wall because the the cancellation frequencies that you get from the reflections will move up in frequency as you get closer to the wall. And so they're actually a lot easier to deal with because they're high in frequency. So you basically get to, you get to absorb them with a thinner absorber if you need to. Yeah, so, high so should you have absorption behind the speakers if they are fairly absolutely. close to the wall? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's actually one of the, one of, if not the most important. Uh, I think absorbing behind the speakers, in my opinion, is more important than actually absorbing on the sides, for example, right? Because the side reflections, if you are symmetrically set up, so the distance on either side is the same, those reflections will, yes, mess with the timing of like the, the, um, 
the precedence effect will kind of mess with the localization, the 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 pinpoint localization of elements in the in the in the stereo field that will happen. But those reflections will also reflections will also broaden the actual stereo image that you hear. So uh, and that's that's actually a pleasant experience. Technically, uh, like in 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 the research, uh, it shows that or like the research shows that for pure listening rooms, that's actually what people prefer. Um, and that's where that whole debate of putting absorption or diffusion on your left and right came from, because the research shows that for listening purposes, pure enjoyment factor, those sidewall reflections actually increase the width of the stereo image and your envelopment in the, in the, in the sound. And um, that's where that whole thing started. In my opinion, because we're not just listening, we're actually interacting with what we're doing. Uh, this doesn't uh, hold quite as much uh, value. It's not quite as important. But again, going back to which which position is is like is important to absorb. In my opinion, it makes more sense to absorb behind the speakers first and actually focus on your left and right reflection points. Makes sense. And then one last question about speakers um, with subwoofer positioning. I've always heard it said that subwoofers are omnidirectional. So. Yes. How does that affect where you should place those in your room? Okay, so this is again uh, um, a very interesting topic. And um, first thing, first thing to understand is that, and I'm sure if you've set up subwoofers, and especially in a in a fairly well treated room, you will have realized that you can localize where the subwoofer is, and that is because this whole idea of not being able to localize or that that the sound from the subwoofer is omnidirectional at the low frequencies, that part is true. What it doesn't take into account is higher frequencies and how our hearing system perceives the relationship between the low frequencies and the slightly higher frequencies that it outputs. This is uh, a slightly is a bit more difficult to explain. So I'm going to refer back to an article by a sound engineer called Merlane Van Veen. Um, maybe I should, if you do you're doing show notes, I yeah, imagine yeah, I somewhere. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. exactly. We'll put a link there because. He wrote an excellent article, and he does this. He actually shows this in his in his seminars all the time that you can totally localize subwoofers, and it has nothing to do with the fact that it it plays sound spherically. It's it's actually it has to do with how we hear how our hearing system works. But so that being said, ideally you want to set up your subwoofer in a way that it is symmetrical to your ears basically to your room and to your ears so in that sense the middle of the room the center axis that you're sitting on is really the only option that you have unless you're working with two subwoofers blah 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 but working with one subwoofer that's really the only option that you have and then on top of that you want to optimize the um, or you want to basically have it at the same distance to your ears as this distance from your speakers to your ears because you want that uh, you want the, the the time the sound takes to reach your ear from your speakers and your subwoofer to be the same. And you had do that by placing them at the same distance from your ear. So that kind of, if you're on that center, if you have to position on the center axis and you have to position it at the same distance from your ear, that really gives you only one choice to put up a subwoofer. Now, that being said, in a in a in an untreated room, oftentimes that will not give you a a particularly good frequency response, and uh, and it actually makes sense to to experiment with other positions uh, to figure out if one of them will give you a better uh, frequency response in the low end. 
And the way to do that, the one that the best way I've found so far, and I still haven't exactly figured out why it works, but is to, and if you've read about subwoofer placement, I'm sure you've come across this, is that you place the subwoofer at your listening position. And by the way, not on the floor, but at ear height. So you literally put a chair like a bar stool at your listening position, and then you put the subwoofer on top of that so that the subwoofer is at, the, at your exact listening position. And now the whole thing inverts and you can actually crawl around on the floor where potentially the subwoofer might end <laughs> up and figure out where it sounds the most balanced as you're playing some music that you know well. Wow. And that will give you a much better idea of which, uh, which areas in your, in your, in your, around your setup are, are potential spots for a subwoofer, right? But again, it makes sense to put it at, a, at the same distance to your ears as your speakers. So you kind of want to you want to test that kind of that that uh, that arc around your around your listening position mapped onto the floor. You want to test that arc and figure out where along that the, that potential arc the, the you'll get the best frequency response, the best balanced low end. And then once you figure that out, you swap it around again. That's where you put the subwoofer and, and uh, and then, yeah, you just, in my opinion, it makes sense to just stick to the standard like 80 hertz uh, transition frequency. Don't don't make your life more difficult than it needs to to be, uh, at least in this kind of very crude, crude, uh, rudimentary way of setting up subwoofers. And then, um, yeah, and then uh, set the volume again to something. I like to always say set the volume at something conservative. Don't uh, don't 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 think that a lot of bass will give you a better a better ability to judge what you hear. You want to. You want to just kind of you just want to hear it coming in if you if you if you enable if you disable and enable it like if you you just want to hear it supporting the sound from your sub from your speakers that's sort of the ideal uh, the ideal volume that's amazing so that's a kind of a, a a way to set up your subwoofers if you want to check out something completely different uh, again on the Neumann website highly recommended they it's a it's a bit hidden you kind of have to look for it but as part of the guides to their subwoofers there's a very detailed guide on how to set up subwoofers with test signals and they have a a, a very different way to set up subwoofers to what i just explained um, um but with like again uh, hearing tests so you, you can do this without needing any type of equipment and, and um, i haven't tried it myself but they are knowledgeable people so if uh, what I just told you doesn't work or rather it's not good enough, then go check that out. Uh, that's probably a good, uh, a good place to start as well. Definitely. I'll, I'll definitely look that up and uh, put it in the show notes. Man, this has been super, super helpful. I, I, I'm like excited to awesome. do some experiments <laughs> in my room now. <laughs> I think I've covered most of the bases in my room, but, uh, but yeah, definitely yeah, want to yeah. try some new things. But uh, yeah, awesome. um, yeah, we should probably start to wrap things up. But how how can people find a little bit more about you and and the websites you're running and all the stuff you do? Yeah, yeah. So so mainly, if you're interested in acoustics and you want to learn more about that stuff, you want to go to acousticsinsider.com. Uh, so that's where I, I I yeah. There's a tons of blog articles on there, uh, all on on all types of questions relating relating to uh, setting up your room and. Um, and uh, optimizing the acoustics and working like finding a good desk and and all this kind of stuff. Uh, very practical approaches. I try and make it as as hands-on as possible. And um, yeah, if you're in the Berlin area and you want to uh, get help with your treatment, um, you can come find me at uh, Studio Acoustics Berlin. Very simple. 
Um, and then obviously I've got my mixing engineer website, just jescolohan.com. Um, but uh, yeah, mainly if you're interested in acoustics, go check out acousticsinsider.com um, and do sign up to my mailing list as well. I write, write weekly. It's, it's, uh, I don't, it's, 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 there's no real marketing. It's literally me just like dissecting stuff and writing about my experiences in this whole world and, uh, and trying to, to help you through battle through this, uh, through this uh, mess that is acoustics and figure out what matters and what doesn't. And um, so yeah, sign up there and, and I hope, hopefully I'll see you there. Definitely a lot of really good resources on there. I've, I've checked it out multiple times and you always have a great way of explaining things. So that's awesome. Yeah, I try. Thanks. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for being on here. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Take care. So there you have it, guys. That was my interview with Yesco Lohan. And once again, just to repeat, if you're interested in acoustic treatment and you're interested in learning more about how to get better control of your control room and your mixing room or your live room to get the t get better quality sound and more accurate mixes, make sure to check out his website, AcousticsInsider.com. The guy does amazing work, and as you can hear in this interview, he really knows what he's talking about. So I'm really grateful that he was on the show. Thank you so much again, Yesco, for being on. Really appreciate it. Now, if this is your first time listening to the Master Your Mix podcast, I would love to have you visit the website, MasterYourMix.com. When you check out the website, I'm giving away a free copy of my Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide to using EQ and compression across a variety of instruments in your mixes so that you know exactly what to do, what to look out for, what to listen for, what areas to boost and cut with EQ, or how to compress those tracks so that you can get better results faster. So make sure to check out the website, MasterYourMix.com, and when you sign up, you'll see a link to download your free copy today. All you got to do is just enter your email address, and when you do that, I'll send you your copy of the Blueprint, and I'll also send you weekly tips and tricks and video updates and all sorts of useful information to help you improve your mixes. So check that out. And other than that, I'll see you in the next episode. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.